Father God, we come before you now in the matchless name of Christ. And as we go to open your word, and here you proclaim to us the excellencies of your glory, of who you are, we ask that you would take control of our hearts and that you would incline them to you. That you would position our hearts to look upward, heavenward, Godward. That you would open our eyes by the power of you, Holy Spirit, so that we can see your glory, God. And love you for it. That you would take our hearts and that you would unite them to you, God. That we would both fear your name, but also treasure your name. The name that is above all names. That as we come this morning to gather before you, our hearts are weary. Our hearts are tired. Our hearts have dealt with sin and fear and anxiety and a variety of other things. Lord, satisfy our longing hearts with your love. Lead us into your truth and make us more like Christ. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight and to the glorious praise of Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what only you can do now. That is, take the heart of someone who is lost and give it a heart of faith. Take the heart of those who are in the faith and strengthen it, that our faith would be deeper. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, last week I preached on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And we looked at the glory of God in salvation. It was the first part of a longer passage. In that section, we saw the glory of God the Father. And then in the evening, a small crowd was still here for the evening service, and we preached 7 through 14. And then... Monday, Tuesday came, and I was getting emails of, can you preach that for the entire church next Lord's Day morning? For those who didn't hear it, and for those who did, uh, some of them wanted to hear it again because there was a lot of truth in there that was difficult to digest in one sitting. Um, So after much prayer and discussion with some of the leadership, um, we determined that we would build that message out even a little bit more robustly. And that we said this evening, uh, this morning, we would finish that section. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Ephesians chapter one, and we're going to look at verses seven through 14. And as we look at Ephesians chapter one, verses seven through 14, I want us to see that the, the big idea, the main focus of what we're going to see in this passage is that we are to behold and to delight in the glory of God in our salvation. Now, there's a Puritan named John Owen. He was used by God powerfully. Uh, He wrote books that are very robust, difficult to understand. So if you can find a modern English version, uh, I definitely recommend that. Um, But he wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. And that book has left an indelible imprint upon my soul. I go back to it often. Sometimes I just leaf through it to see the highlighted sections, which is probably more not highlighted sections than highlighted. But it's a book that God has used to open my eyes to the glory of King Jesus. So let me share two quotes from this book. The first one, quote, By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, 
fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passion, and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace, end quote. Second quote says, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me something like dead and putrid impossible for me to enjoy, end quote. So as we continue to look at this second half of the message of the glory and God of salvation, I really pray, it is my hope, that all of us would see a little bit more of the glory of God, the glory of God in our salvation. This morning, specifically, the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's read this section, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him for the administration of the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Our first point this morning is the glory of God the Son. The Apostle Paul begins here in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. Those two words are really important, in him, in Christ. When you see in him, it's presupposing those who have put their faith in Jesus are united to Jesus. And he says, in him, we have redemption. We don't really use that word much these days, redemption. But it's an extremely important word so that we can properly understand our salvation. The word redemption carries the sense of paying a ransom in order to set someone free. To purchase back someone who was perhaps in the bondage of slavery. Redemption is a word that could perhaps summarize the story of Israel, especially in the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. Deuteronomy 7, 8. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel was in slavery to Egypt hundreds of years. And their hope was not that they could mount a rebellion and free themselves. Their only hope was that God would sovereignly, in his loving grace, set them free, redeem them. And we see here that's exactly what he did. In his love, he frees Israel. And what is true for Israel is true for every single one of us here this morning. Here's the ugly truth of the, of the matter. That apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single person is in bondage, is in slavery to sin and to Satan. We're like dogs that return to their vomit. Even those who are, don't have faith in Christ, how often do you hear, I just, I don't want to do that thing, but I keep doing it. The person who does not have faith in Jesus cannot help it. They are like a moth drawn to the flame. They are, their entire nature, their disposition, their desires are given to sin because that's what they're in slavery to. Every single person's mind, desires, and actions reflect this. Because all of us, but especially those who do not have faith in Christ, know fundamentally at their core, they wouldn't want the world to know their deepest desires. When Adam disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that part of him, that spiritual life he had, died. That part that united him to God died. And at that moment, he went from being a slave of righteousness to a slave of sin, and he inherited, he was given a sin nature. In all humanity, since Adam is born with a sinful nature. Everybody is born with a desire for evil. Everybody is born with a hatred for God. Despite what society tells you, people are not inherently good. If people were inherently good, nobody would lock their doors. If people were inherently good, we wouldn't need police. But we know fundamentally that people are born wicked. And so because people are slaves to sin, because people have a sin nature, man's greatest need is to be redeemed. Sin is the slave owner of every person who has not been set free by Christ. But the beautiful truth is that that redemption, that freedom is possible. But it's only possible one way. And that's to be redeemed by the work and person of Jesus Christ. You can't work off your sin debt. There is no year of jubilee where after seven years of being a sinner, all of a sudden you're made righteous. That's not how it works. 
The only way people can be freed, redeemed, it tells us right here, in him we have redemption through his blood. Our redemption, our freedom is purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. As Jesus was crucified, nailed, hung there, as the wrath of God was poured on him from behalf of all who would believe, the price is being paid, which is why Jesus said at the end of his life, it is finished, paid in full. So great was our debt that the very Son of God had to take upon flesh, live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and die for three days in the tomb. That's the only way this freedom happens. Mark 10.45 tells us that this is the very reason Jesus came. It says, for even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to make his life and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a, a redemption for many. Jesus' entire life came to purchase the freedom of sinners. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Speaking of our glorious King, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption that comes through Christ cancels your debt of sin. Think about that. Completely gone, wiped away. Perhaps there is a time in your life, perhaps there is a time in your life that you right now have a, a worldly material debt. Imagine the joy that if you leave church today, you get a phone call and said, all debt paid in full. That'd be glorious. Be amazing. Maybe it's your mortgage paid in full. How much more glorious is it that the debt that we have before a holy God, the debt that our own sin, that, that we've dug with our own sin, through faith in Jesus Christ, by the shedding of his blood, says you're, rede you're redeemed. It's paid in full. You are free. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When you put your faith in Jesus and he redeems you, the shackles fall off. You're free. You're free from the power and the penalty of sin. You can put it this way. The blood of Christ is the currency of redemption. So we have to stop and we have to ask the question, church. I have to ask the question before you. Have you truly been redeemed from your sin by faith in Christ? Or are you simply maybe looking to Jesus as a good example? Maybe you're simply looking to Jesus because as you, you know, maybe read some passages, you look to Jesus, you know what? It just gives you a little bit of hope. 
Or do you look to Christ and recognize, you know what? I actually am a sinful person. I actually am wicked. I may be better than some, but that just means I'm a more moral devil. I really need freedom. I really need redemption. I really need the forgiveness of sin. And that's only available to really throwing my entire hope in being at what Jesus did for me on the cross. Do you really see your need of redemption through his shed blood? Because there is no other way. It's an exercise in futility to try to find redemption in any other source or by any other means. So even here, if you're hearing this and you recognize, you know what? I haven't. I haven't sought redemption in Jesus' shed blood. Do so right now. Cry out to him in your very heart right now. Allow his perfect life, his substitutionary death to pay your debt. See that he is fully God and fully man and that he came to save you. And if you have truly been redeemed through the blood of Christ, then the follow-up question is, are you living like somebody who's been set free? Or are you still living like somebody who's a slave to sin? How does that look? Maybe there's a sin you've always struggled with. Maybe there's a sin you're currently struggling with. And you're sitting there, and I just can't help it. I'm stuck. This is who I am. I can't get out of this pit. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's the whisper of the serpent. You have been redeemed through the shed blood of Christ. You have been set free. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. You no longer need to live as a sin, as a, as a slave to sin. You can now live as a saint before God. So the first thing we see here, in him we have redemption through his blood. He goes on, for the forgiveness of our transgressions. And we use that word forgiveness, but I think we don't recognize just how powerful of a statement God is making here. Forgiveness means to completely send away. It's, it's a legal term. It's going back to redemption. It's the cancellation of debt. It's to be pardoned. Transgressions is another word for breaking God's commands. And so I just need us to, I, I, I need to remind myself of this. So I'll just preach this one to myself. Until I feel the infinite debt of my sin... I will never sing of the greatness of the God who has forgiven me. Don't jump to the good news without first feeling the weight of the bad news. Because when you do that, you cheapen the good news. And that good news is that you have been forgiven of your transgressions. Now, this... Here, the forgiveness of our transgressions, it has biblical connections woven throughout the entire Bible. We see that throughout the scriptures, there is no forgiveness of transgressions without the shedding of blood. So the verse told us, redemption through his blood, forgiveness, go to Leviticus chapter 17. Third book, Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, Moses writes, For 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Atonement is another way to say the removal of sin, the forgiveness that comes. So in the very beginning of our Bibles, the very beginning of God's redemptive story, we're seeing that there has to be a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then near the back of our New Testaments, in Hebrews chapter 9, we read the following. The book of Hebrews is kind of like a commentary on Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, starting at verse 22. And according to the law, one almost... One may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What is being driven here is that Jesus is that ultimate blood sacrifice. That Jesus, the the Jews before Christ, would have to yearly make these sacrifices, yearly shed the blood of the animal and have it sprinkled upon the altar, year after year after year, because the blood of animals could never completely remove the stain of sin. But Jesus is the final, perfect, ultimate sacrifice. And so when he laid his life down at the cross... His blood forgives all sin, past, present, and future, for those who trusted him. That is what he did. Our sin is so great that it deserves the judgment of God, the full wrath of God. But so great is the blood of Christ, so great is Jesus, that his blood removes that infinite debt that we can't pay. And I just want to say, I've said this before, isn't it amazing that it would take you an eternity to pay the debt of sin? And so great is Jesus that he paid what it would take you an eternity he did in three hours. In three hours, he took the wrath of God on your behalf, the wrath of all who believed in him, and he drank that cup to the very bottom. At the cross, the Lamb of God, the sinless Savior, willingly hangs and absorbs the penalty. He pays the price so that you could have redemption, the forgiveness of your transgressions. And because of that act of love, that act of obedience, I want you to hear this. Listen to what God's word says about your sin. These are verses that if you're a Bible highlighter or whatever, highlight them, circle them, underline them, because these are powerful reminders that we all need. The first comes from Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Which means infinitely. Because you can't go east enough that you hit west. God has infinitely removed our transgressions from us because of what Jesus has done. 
There's consequences to our sin, but the penalty for our sin can never come back to haunt you. It has been infinitely removed. Or Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You know what's amazing, church? That we still can't plumb the deepest parts of the ocean. With all our technology, we can't get, we can go, we know more about space than what's at the bottom of the ocean floor. There's a recent discovery that saw that there is water somehow within the mantle that actually could flood the earth, so it's proving the possibility of a noatic flood. That's how deep God has buried your sin. It goes, he has put your sin, he has buried it to the depths of the ocean where no human eye has ever seen. Where no piece of human tech can ever go. You're that forgiven because of Jesus' shed blood. And it's amazing, too, is back then they didn't even realize how deep the ocean really was. We do now. We have a vivid understanding of what this means. It's deeper than Mount Everest. So deep has your sin been buried. And lastly, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Church, when Jesus came, took upon flesh, and accomplished our redemption, our sin has been completely wiped away. Meaning, your sin can no longer be held against you. God himself says, I will remember your sins no more. It's not saying that God actually forgets. He means I'm not holding them against you. I'm going to operate toward you as if they never happened. So if God says he has forgotten your sins, why on earth do we spend so much time dwelling on them? After you confess your sin, after you repent your sin, be done with it. Because God's done with it. Don't sit there trying to make a deeper atonement than God has required. For every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ, is what I believe Robert Murray McShane once said. The devil wants you to keep focusing on the sin Christ already died for. God says, focus on my son. Focus on the glory of your salvation found through Jesus. That is how great and how glorious our God is. And when you think about that forgiveness at least when I think about that forgiveness, I am reminded that the way God forgives, no person could ever forgive. We forgive somebody, but we've all been there in a moment of frustration, anger, disagreement. We bring up the past. 
We go, we dig up the body of that sin and we shake that skeleton in front of them. Well, remember when you did this? Or, well, you know, if you hadn't done that, it'd be easier to believe you here now. That's an effect of our sin because that's not how our God forgives at all. God is done with it as far as the east is from the west to the very depths of the sea. It has been wiped out to be remembered no more. Why does God forgive that way? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. God is offering each and every one of us an otherworldly forgiveness, a supernatural divine forgiveness through Christ. Have you felt that pardon? Have you felt the weight lifted? Have you felt that you've been made clean? King David was a man after God's own heart, but David got himself in some pretty gross sin. Adultery, murder, lies, deceptions. Read Psalm 51, you see David's very heart breaking as he thinks about what has happened. But he understands there's a God who forgives and that God has graciously forgave him because he repented. And listen to how David talks about that pardon he received in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. Can you say that, church? Can you sing those two verses with King David? When you think of your sin and you think of Christ, are you able to smile and say, praise be to God to his glorious grace? Because that's what we see here in Ephesians. Paul says that in verse 7, but he ends verse 7 according to the riches of his grace. I actually appreciate how the English Standard Version renders this. It says, which he lavished upon us. He has heaped his grace upon you. He has showered his grace upon you. He has super abundantly poured it upon you. He has broken the dam and let the floodwaters of his extravagant grace pour over you and swallow you up. The reason all this has happened, yes, that's what Christ did, but it flows from the fact that there is a God who is real, and that God is full of grace. The late theologian Charles Hodge said it this way, quote, An overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God, and freely accessible through Christ. End quote. Unmerited, inexhaustible, freely available. The only thing keeping you this morning from receiving the redemption, the forgiveness, according to the grace of God, is you. That's the only thing keeping you from receiving it is you. Salvation is free for you because it costs Christ everything. You need only recognize that you are a sinner, repent, and trust in Christ. And that amazing, extravagant, superabundant grace will be poured upon you. Our redemption flows from, is connected to God's character. 
It's because God is gracious. Every other religion, you have to work your way into God's goodwill. The gospel tells us you need only accept God's grace to be in his goodwill. Every other religion says you have to do this. Our gospel in Christ tells us Christ has already done it for you. You need only repent and believe. So again, another question for us to ponder as we think about this. Well, actually, let me say this before we ask the question. The grace of God is a bank account that can never be drained. No sin is too, be, too big to be forgiven. No sin is so great that he, his grace can't cover it. You can't write a check of sin so ginormous that somehow God's grace account is going to be overdrafted. It's impossible. There is nothing you could do in this life that would be greater than God's ability to forgive through Christ. And that should make your heart explode. And God does it for his, by his grace for his glory. So the question now is, are you sitting here this morning and you're doubting if God can really forgive you? Can he really forgive me? I know he could forgive them, but can he forgive me? If he really knew what I've done, what I've thought, what I've wanted, could he forgive? Yes, he knows that he's omniscient. That blood of Christ, maybe you're thinking, has the blood of Jesus really, is it really that powerful that it could forgive? If that's where you're at, I want you to hear verse 7 once more. And I'm going to personalize it for you. In him, you have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of your transgressions according to the riches of his grace. Do not doubt that God can and has redeemed you. That God has forgiven you. That he's done it through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that he's done it according to his glorious grace that is praiseworthy for all eternity. Not only does he redeem and forgive us, but he goes on in verses 8 and 9 to also tell us that we are provided with the ability to understand all of this. After he talks about the riches of grace, he says, which he caused to abound in us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in him. Wisdom and insight, they're synonymous here, driving home the same point. And what Paul is saying is, is that this redemption, this forgiveness that you've received through Christ, God gives you a spiritual ability to understand it. You see, the, the person who doesn't have faith in Christ can understand what the Bible says, but they don't understand it in a way that it causes delight, in a way that causes them to build their whole life around it, in a way that causes them to say, this is my only hope in life and death. But God, in his abundant grace, gives us spiritual wisdom and insight to understand his will of redemption for Jew and Gentile. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. God has given us his spirit so that we could understand his will and his work. God has given us the ability to have a transformed heart that understands God's word and then seeks to respond in a way that honors him. He's given us the ability to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's revealed to us the mystery of his will. And by mystery, what Paul's talking about, the mystery of his will, is that, guess what? God didn't just come for the Jews. God came to save all men and women of all stripes, colors, and sizes. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, it says, About which when you read, you can understand the insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men but is now revealed to his holy places, his holy, his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, we'll only read a couple verses. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision, by who are called, who are so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are, who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What he's saying is when Jesus came, that redemption, that forgiveness was made available to all. To everybody. Have you ever looked at somebody and say, "I, you know what? I don't know that they can really make it into the kingdom." You look at somebody and you're like, "Man, that's a that's a black hole. They're not they're not going to get saved. No way. No, we serve an omnipotent God who, from the foundation before the foundations of the world, determined that He would save Jew, that He would save Gentile, that He would save the smart, that He would save the not so smart." that he would save the rich, that he would save the poor, that he would save anyone and everyone who would come to Christ through faith. The mystery of his will revealed. And then verse 10, in the fullness of all the times, the summing up of all things in Christ. Meaning when the time was right, church, what he's saying here is that everything that has been broken because of sin, will be made right, will be fixed. Cosmic redemption is coming. Now, we are told in Genesis 1 and 2 that there was no death. So maybe I'm wrong here. I'm just stretching out on a limb. But how many of us have seen a shooting star and think that's beautiful? A shooting star is a dying star. There's a time coming when stars will never die. And the reason a star will never die is because Jesus Christ died for sin and was resurrected in power. Think about that. There is a cosmic redemption coming, not just a personal redemption that we have. So I want to encourage us to not be pessimistic, to not lose hope in the world. Yes, right now in history, 
There's a lot of things that can really make us pessimists. We can really be thinking the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But we have a victorious Savior, which means we have a victorious faith, which means every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped. Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Everything that God created is, will be redeemed because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that's beautiful. So have a victorious faith. Doesn't mean there aren't hard moments in history. Doesn't mean there aren't hard moments in your life. But in the overarching story of God, there is victory and reconciliation that Christ is bringing about. The kingdom of God is already here in part. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's a sense within God's kingdom is here and it's being progressively expanded and there will be a time when he returns and it is in its fullness. And understanding that God through Christ is doing this cosmic redemption, understanding that God through Christ means that there is victory, that also means you and I have a responsibility not to have uh, what I would call bomb shelter theology. Where you're like, God saved me, I'm just going to hide it out and wait the storm out until it returns. It means we don't separate our lives into sacred and secular, but we see all of our life as proclaiming the glory of God who has saved us. That means Jesus' mission is our mission. It means that if Christ has come to reconcile all things to himself, and we are in Christ by faith, each and every one of us are in the business of reconciliation. Each of us have a ministry to proclaim Christ so that everybody can be reconciled to Christ by faith. And we are to live and conduct ourselves in such a manner that shows we really believe that. You can't sit here and be like, man, look at all that Jesus has done for me. I'm blown away. Let me go live like a devil. That's not how that works. If you recognize that you've been redeemed, forgiven through the blood of Christ, that God has poured out the storehouses of his grace upon you, then those who receive God's grace live lives that display that grace. There is a day coming, church, when everybody, everybody will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here and now in this life, you can cry out as Christ is Lord by faith. Do not squander the opportunity to receive the saving grace of, your, of God through Christ and receive and declare Christ as Lord. Do not, do not pass that up. Because in this life here and now, we get to see the grace of his salvation. But those who do not bend the knee and repent of their sin and trust in Christ will see the glory of his judgment. This last point goes quickly. Verse 11, he talks about an inheritance we're receiving. 
In him, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's talking about this, this future inheritance, this future part of our salvation we'll receive. That points back to verse 3, where he says that you have received every blessing in the, in the heavenly places. We get the inheritance because we're part of God's family. Inheritances are for those who are part of that family line. You have been adopted into the family of God because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we long and as we wait for this coming day where we receive this inheritance and we are with our God in glory, we can take heart and have comfort knowing that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that is happening is according to God's plan for his glory and for your good if you are in Christ. So I hope you see the glory of Christ in your salvation here. I hope that you and I can loudly and boldly declare the glory of God the Son. Let us be men and women who burst forward with praise that Christ is glorious to save. Christ is not glorious because he saves. Christ is glorious and we see it in how he saves. He says, and lastly, in 13 and 14, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise was given as a pledge of our inheritance. We worship a God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've seen the glory of God the Father. We've seen the glory of God the Son. Here's the glory of the Holy Spirit. He says the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You've come to know Christ because the gospel has been proclaimed, church. Do you realize that for an individual to really be able to see their, the reality of their sin, to see Jesus as the only way to salvation, is because the Holy Spirit, in his kindness and in his grace, has come and given you a new heart? Nobody comes to, nobody comes to faith because they're intelligent. They come to faith because God has supernaturally bestowed his grace upon you and given you eyes to see and a mind to understand and a heart to embrace. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. He saved us not by works, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you are in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, you need to say thank you to the Holy Spirit. You need to say thank you that the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, that he gave you the gift of faith, that he's given you what is called the new birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, one must be born again. Guess what? Nobody gives birth to themselves. But because you've been given birth, the baby freely responds by crying. Just as when the Holy Spirit freely causes us to be born again and gives us a new heart of faith, we freely cry out in faith. The Holy Spirit, church, he takes what Jesus has done and he applies it to your life. He convicts you of your sin. 
He convicts you and convinces you of the judgment of God rightly against you. He opens your eyes that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did. And then he takes what Jesus has done and he credits it to your account. And you cry out in faith, and this is all a gift of God. It is all of his grace. And then he seals you. You are sealed by the Spirit. Not only does God do all this, then he puts his mark upon you. Sealed, it was the idea of an owner, um, a personal sign that the owner marked something as his possession. You can think of a signet ring, they dip it in wax, they put their seal upon it, it's theirs. God has put his seal upon you so that you will know and that everybody will know he or she is mine. He's put a royal seal upon you. Not only has the Spirit of God sealed you to assure you and assure the world that you belong to God by faith in Christ, but he indwells you. He lives in you. You ever think about that? The third member of the Trinity lives inside of you and is committed every minute of every day to guide you into paths of righteousness so that you can be shaped more into the image of Christ so that you can enjoy more of God. Really puts boredom into perspective. The third member of the Trinity lives in me and sometimes I feel dull to spiritual things. That just shows how boring of a person I am to not realize the glory that's right before me. And this seal is a word of encouragement, church, because if you're anything like me, you question whether you're saved sometimes. Am I really forgiven? Am I really saved? And when those moments come, the way my sinful flesh tries to Find that assurance. I'm going to double down on Bible reading. I'm going to memorize more scriptures. I'm going to read books by dead guys. I'm going to try to go witness to people. I'm going to make sure to get to church extra early so I seem extra spiritual and God knows that I think his attendance matters, right? I'm going to do all those things. I'm going to really pray. I'm going to play with my children more because I'm a person filled with the Holy Spirit of love. I'm trying to manufacture assurance on my own strength rather than realizing God has set his seal upon me through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That I'm not saved by the size of my faith. I'm saved by the object of my faith, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That the only assurance I need is to look to the gospel, to believe the word, to remember that God, what God puts his seal on, he will never lose. A little bit later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He sealed me. He indwells me. He put a pledge, a guarantee, a down payment. God is fully committed and fully will complete your salvation. What I mean by that is you were saved by faith, meaning your justification. You are being saved, your sanctification, and you will be saved, your glorification. God is committed to bringing that work. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God will do this because he wants to show you his glory 
in your salvation, in your life. He wants to show you his greatness. And as he shows you more of his greatness in your salvation, you will delight and find more goodness in him than you ever thought possible. One more verse and a quote, and we'll land the plane. Psalm 27, verse 4. This is a verse that I have... I'm not an outwardly very emotional person, but this is a verse that will choke me up because I desperately desire to be able to say this and mean it. One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. There is a day coming, church, that you will be brought into the actual presence of God. That which you see by faith now, you will see by sight. Think about the fact that the one who gives beauty to all things, you will behold with real eyes. You will see a beauty that if you saw it in this life, it would be so great that it would kill you. It will be yours by sight. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has sealed you. He has indwelt you. He is doing all of these things to prepare you for that day where his glory, his glorious grace will be before you shining forth in the person of Jesus. And for all eternity, you will see and savor the beauty and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, an actual face. He has a resurrected body. You will look into those piercing eyes, and you will see in the eyes of Christ the beauty and glory of God. But here now, in part, we can see that glory. We can see the glory of God in our salvation through the work of the Father, through the work of the Son, and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So like I said, a verse and a quote, so let me end here. Isaac Ambrose wrote a book called Looking Unto Jesus, and he wrote the following, quote, A right beholding of Christ in his eternal workings will cause a desire of Christ above all desires. The heart now thirsts for nothing but him, that is all. All power, all love, all holiness, all happiness. Tell such a soul of the world, gold and glory. Oh, what are these? The soul will quickly tell you that the world is done. Glory is done. All is but loss and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord. Give me God in Christ, says the soul, or I die. Oh, my desires are to him who have done all this for me. All that shines and glitters in this world is glorious. All that seems good and promises happiness in this world is nothing but dung when put before the diamond that is Christ. When you truly begin by faith to see who Christ is, and God opens your eyes more and more through this life of who Christ is, you will say, give me Christ or I die. So church, I want and I pray that this message and the message from last week has at least in part helped us behold and delight in the glory of God and our salvation a bit more. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you in the glorious name of Jesus. We thank you, Father God, that from eternity past, you in the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined to save a sinful people for yourself. And you determined in that salvation to showcase your glory, your goodness, your grace, your majesty, your awesomeness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you freely, voluntarily, and joyfully came upon came to this world, took upon flesh, that you lived a perfect life, that you always did what was pleasing to God the Father, and that you willingly went to the cross and died a substitutionary death. It wasn't something that happened to you so much as something that you planned to happen. You determined that this was the way. We thank you that you took the full wrath of God the Father because in the shedding of your blood, we could have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, and we often don't acknowledge your power and presence enough in our lives, that you, from the very beginning, took what Jesus did, applied it to our heart, that you gave us the gift of faith, and that here and now you indwell us so that we can love, honor, obey, and walk in holiness before this great and glorious God of ours. Father, I don't know if there are people here this morning who are not in Christ. Men and women, perhaps this morning, children this morning, who perhaps have heard much about Jesus and give a head nod of approval to him, but they haven't really been born again. They don't have new hearts, and so they are blind to the glory that is you. I pray here and now, Holy Spirit, that you would pierce their heart, that you would show them the wickedness of their sin, but that you would show them that as wicked as their sin is, there is glory and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the sinless Savior of the world. Give them a new heart, Give them love for Christ. Give them faith. And for all of us in here who are in Christ, Lord, would you enlarge in our capacity to worship and delight in all that you are for us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for showcasing your glory and our salvation. And thank you that there is a day coming that we will see your glory and beauty and fullness in the face of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.